Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. Well, good morning. Uh, If I have not met you, my name is Cohen. I'm the college pastor here at Grace City, and I get the privilege of closing out our series in James this week. So we've been going through James for about eight weeks. Uh, We've been calling this series Practical Faith because uh, if you've you've read through James, you know that it's not a deep book of super deep theological issues, but rather it's really surface level in terms of practical application, and it kind of hurts to read. You kind of get through it, and you come out the other side really battered and bruised because you're like, man, I don't do like even near all this stuff, and James is pretty clear like, if we are really following Jesus, this is exactly what we need to be doing. Uh, so I get the privilege of, of uh, closing out our, our series today. We're going to be in James chapter 5. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and open up to James chapter 5. And also, if you have a, a QR code, if you're already in the portal and everything, we have the sermon notes there for you. Uh, if you don't have a card to scan, you can go to gracecityboston.com portal. And you can get the sermon notes, worship lyrics, anything that you would need to look at basically is all there. Uh, can everybody hear me in the back? Are we, are we good here? We got volume? Awesome. All right, well, I want to begin uh, just in a word of prayer, and then we will uh, we'll dive into our scripture here today. So uh, join me in prayer. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for the blessing that is the park. Father, it's so easy to see uh, just the fact that we're not in comfy chairs and that there's a uh, a new pond right next to us, basically. It's really wet out here. There's helicopters flying around. We can get so distracted by uh, the things that we don't have that we're used to, God, but we, we do see this as a blessing. So we ask that you would just meet us in this place right now and fill us with the Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you want. God, would you just speak through your word today and help us to hear what James is saying and apply it to our lives that we could uh, just go on this week and um, live better the way of Jesus. Father, would you just open our hearts and ears to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have uh, your scriptures or you've got your sermon notes open, we are going to be starting in James chapter 5, verse 13. And I don't really, uh, I don't really title my sermons. Uh, really, I just say like, this is James 5. Uh, but this, this week, I think it, it kind of serves to observe that before we read this, uh, James is going to be talking about practical prayer in practical suffering. So I think that's a a good way to close off this series of practical faith. He's kind of ending exactly how he started it. So if you read James 1, it's pretty much the same content about praying in the middle of suffering. So uh, let's see what he has to say starting in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah, the prophet Elijah, was a man with a nature like ours And he prayed fervently that it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So like I said, this, if you want to sum up what James is talking about here, I like to call it practical prayer 
during practical suffering. And you may hear both those things. You can, you can say, okay, I think I get the practical prayer part. That sounds right. But what about practical suffering? What about suffering is actually practical? I, you know, we, we live in a culture where suffering is not, it is not seen as like something that's possible. It's possible to get good from that. It's kind of a zero sum game. We, we kind of work our entire lives around avoiding any sort of suffering. And so today we're going to break that down, kind of unlearn some lies maybe that our culture tells us and learn how James says prayer fits into suffering. So let's talk about these two topics. And I want us uh, to maybe think of a, a spectrum that you're on, maybe like how often you pray or how you react during suffering. And I want us to diagnose ourselves before we move forward. How do we view prayer and how do we view suffering? You personally. And then whenever you diagnose yourself, like where you are, we can move forward in that way. So uh, prayer can be a polarizing topic. Maybe you think prayer is pointless. We pray a lot here at Grace City. We have a prayer room every Wednesday. Uh, we asked some people who went to our church a while back, uh, like why they don't like prayer. These specific friends of mine asked them why they don't like prayer. And they said, it just seems pointless. If we know that God is sovereign and in control of everything, why do we pray? And it kind of communicates that that belief is like prayer is mainly to change things, you know, to change God's mind about something or to change our circumstances. And if everything's going to happen that way anyway, why prayer? So that's one view of prayer. Maybe you view prayer as scary. Maybe you think prayer is sort of a communal way is like a performance. Like you have to be good at speaking and that's kind of what prayer is. You're kind of just speaking well to God and it has to sound good, you know, or maybe, maybe you don't view prayer that way. Maybe you're like, prayer is good and you should do it and it's great. And I pray regularly but I could not tell you why it's necessarily important. It's just, it just is. Uh, maybe you're anywhere on that spectrum or maybe you're just the healthiest, you have the healthiest prayer life ever and if so, that's you. So just kind of peg yourself on that spectrum. Say, here's, here's where my view of prayer is so we can move forward there. And then about suffering, I would say uh, not a lot of us here, we're a very young church, not a lot of us here probably know a ton about the purpose of prayer, but even less so we probably know uh, the purpose of suffering. Now, we live in a culture, like I was saying, that uh, is kind of centered around developing ways to prevent suffering and getting out of suffering. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like medical like progress is great. Technology for entertainment, things like this, it's all great. But if we don't acknowledge the, the bad habits we can build because we have these things or the cons that come with the pros, uh, we can be formed by our culture to be completely unable to handle suffering or use suffering in any way, okay? So uh, what are some examples of this? I mean, we have constant entertainment, entertainment to numb us from boredom, which is, I wouldn't call that suffering. That's more of a mild inconvenience. Uh, but I like to say convenience is, or how you, how you deal with inconvenience is a great barometer for how you will handle suffering. Inconvenience is basically like, a seed form of suffering, okay? Uh, I, read a, I read the most interesting study that came out last month, June 1st, it was like a month and a half ago. This study's from Bloomberg Wealth. It says that of all workers who were like displaced back to their homes to work remotely because of COVID, out of all those workers, 39%, so that's four out of every 10 people, would consider finding a new job, would start looking for a new job if their employer now said they have to go back to the office like before. 
four out of 10 people said, that's too big of an inconvenience now that I'm used to working from home, I would immediately start to look for a new job and see if there's something better out there. And among Gen Z and millennials, which I think is everyone under 40, so, but I think everybody here, um, it's actually 49%. So it's one out of every two people would start looking for a new job simply because they'd have to go to another place to work. And I think that's just a great barometer for like where our culture is. Just like that just indicates how we view inconvenience. We've been trained to look for an alternative as soon as the most minor inconvenience comes up. So uh, my sister's actually one of these people. She works for corporate marketing uh, for Hardee's Carl's Jr. And she, was, she tells me every time I FaceTime her, she's like, my, my bosses are trying to get me to come back to work. It's like a 30 minute drive. I lose my whole day. I can do all the work with like four hours of work at home. And so it makes sense to a degree, like she's being economic about it, but it's kind of like what we used to consider a blessing or maybe the worst would be a mild inconvenience driving to work is now like, I will leave my job over this. Every, every, other, every other person would think this. And so that's just kind of where we are as a culture is like minor inconvenience, we have to go, we have to escape this. There's no possible good that can come from this. And this could not make me a better person in any way. That's sort of our baseline assumption. So prayer and suffering, we're going to hit those two topics today. Uh, we're going to start with prayer. What does James open with in this section? Verse 13, uh, let's hop back in your sermon notes. It has all the scriptures you will need for today. Uh, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So he opens up this section answering this question of when should you pray? In what circumstances should you pray? And he clearly says at both ends of the spectrum, whether you're suffering or you are cheerful, whether things are going bad, whether things are going great. So we already know right off the bat that James is teaching that prayer is not something that changes based on your external circumstances. Whatever's going on around you does not affect the frequency of how and, uh, and when and how often you pray. So that's the first thing we learn about prayer. So maybe this will help diagnose yourself uh, where you are on prayer. This, uh, we're going to get this at least like three more times. This guy's been circling around us all morning. Uh, maybe you're the type of person who only prays when things are bad. So you see prayer mainly as like, I'm in a needy place. I need, I need things from God. And so I generally pray when things are bad. But when things are good, I have what I need. I don't really pray. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you're a very thankful prayer. And so when things are really good, you pray. But when things are really bad, you're like, God, I'm not really happy with you right now. So I'm not going to pray. So maybe that'll help diagnose where you are. But James is clearly saying, you need to pray in both of those situations. Why? Because prayer is not about necessarily changing your circumstances or getting something that you want that you don't have. It's not mainly about that. You can pray for those things and that's mainly a part of prayer, but your external circumstances do not change that at all. This guy's bullying me, he's bullying me. And so why would, why would he say this? Okay, James is not, we need to acknowledge that acknowledge that James is not making this up. James is not some spiritual prodigy or he's making all this up and it just seems good to him. James is the brother of Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah until he resurrected from the dead. Uh, and now he's, he's pushing forward the teaching of his brother, the Messiah, Jesus. And so how did Jesus actually teach this or show this or live this out? So in your sermon notes, I've got some references there. Uh, if you read through the gospel of Matthew and you just focused on Jesus's prayer life, you would be like, that matches up perfectly. James is saying exactly, exactly what Jesus did. So in Matthew 14, here's an example. John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, is killed 
by the government. They don't like him for the kind of crowds he's causing with his preaching. And so they kill John the Baptist. Jesus is very sad, obviously, and he goes off to pray. And then he goes and feeds the 5,000. You get that whole story. He goes and works for the day. And then he goes back to a mountain alone and he prays and he mourns. So he prays when he's suffering. And then we see actually before this in Luke chapter five, verse 15, he's, his ministry's blowing up. He's getting exactly what he planned. All these people are following him. Crowds are coming around and he's, he's, his popularity's growing. People are listening to his teaching. This is good, it's a good scenario. And what does Luke 5, 15 says? It says, but the news about Jesus spread even more and large, ca- large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. It's great news. Yet, he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. Stuff's going good and Jesus just like dips. Everybody's hanging out. So he just fed the 5,000, all this stuff. And we're, you know, we're celebrating Jesus. And then we turn around and we're like, where did he go? He's just gone, like on a mountain. And so what does this, what does this, what does this communicate about prayer? What does Jesus' prayer life communicate? Well, Jesus did not pray like a man who needed blessings or like a man who needed to get out of a sticky situation, he prayed more like his life depended on it. It was a day by day, moment by moment, you know, morning and evening sort of practice. It was a discipline. He prayed as discipline. He prayed as a way to lift himself up every morning and ground himself again by night. And especially in the suffering, he prayed to remember that the father had a plan for whatever he was going through. And then in the cheerful times with the time where the crowds are getting bigger and his ministry's blowing up, he did the exact same thing. He got away in prayer to kind of ground himself in reality that he was not here to be a faith healer necessarily. He was not here to grow in popularity, to gain fame, to gain earthly power. So he went away and he prayed. He clearly demonstrated over and over again that uh, it was not about his circumstances that he prayed. And he He did this even up to the end in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was going to be crucified. He prayed in the garden. What did he pray? Father, if if there's any way this could pass for me, please take this. But how does he finish? How does he finish it? Not my will though, Father, but your will be done. So whether in the suffering or in the cheerful times, he got a way to pray. And so as James continues here in verses uh, 14 through 16, we'll read that. uh, He gives almost a specific example of, you know, a specific example of suffering. There's lots of types of suffering, lots of various trials you could go into, but he, he talks about a hypothetical scenario. Let's go jump back in in verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so there's a lot of things we can pull from this. This actually communicates uh, what the early early, uh, function of elders were. And their main function was uh, was to take care of the poor and the orphans and to pray for the sick and things like this. They were just, their time was set aside to receive these people. So that kind of communicates that. But what I really want to press into right now is the really uncomfortable part of this because it's kind of glaring you in the face when you read this. James seems to be communicating that some type of suffering could possibly have come about because of unconfessed sin. And we hear that and we think, well, that doesn't sound right. Jesus died for my sins. And so 
we won't experience any discipline or punishment or something on this earth if we're living in sin, right? Well, on the other, on the other side of death, on the other side of heaven, that's right. I mean, we have escaped eternal judgment, eternal discipline, eternal punishment. But it is a teaching throughout the Bible that God will discipline his people who refuse to repent of a specific sin or refuse to confess something. And that's at an individual level and at a church-wide level or a nationwide level if we're talking about the Old Testament people of Israel, okay? But why, and why does this need to happen? Because Jesus has saved you to sanctify you, to make you holy like him. He's changing you. He's saving you to change you. He's making you like himself. And so I don't want to just say that in a vacuum. We need to look at some other places and corroborate that and make sure that that's the kind of thing that James is teaching here. So if you look in your sermon notes, we have a passage from 1 Corinthians 11. And this is Paul saying to the Corinthian church, uh, he's saying this because they've misused the Lord's Supper. Basically, what we know about the situation is that the rich people and the poor people in that church were taking the Lord's Supper separately, okay? They were using it as a way to kind of flaunt their wealth. They were eating lots of good food over here and good bread, and the poor basically had nothing to eat. And so Paul is confronting this issue in the, in the middle of a bunch of other issues, and this is what he says. He says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, that is the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep, meaning died. This is the reason why many have, have, have become ill. If we were properly judging ourselves, meaning like confessing sin, repenting, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. It's pretty straightforward there. And it's, pretty, it's kind of pretty scary to think about because we may get ourselves in these positions where we're so comfortable in the grace that Jesus gives us that we, we think he, there's so much grace, he won't even discipline us. He won't even put us in a timeout, you know, to make us think about it. There's so much grace here that that means my life is going to be so easy following Jesus that even if I have these pet sins and these things, these injustices I'm committing, you know, I'm treating one half of the church better than I'm treating the other half of the church. Like God's not ever going to kind of poke and prod at me and make me turn from that. Okay. Let's, uh, let's see what the author of Hebrews says as well. Many people think it's Paul. Uh, a lot of people don't think it's Paul, so we're going to consider this another person. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, this is basically my entire sermon. Is this, we could just read the scripture and be done with it. I mean, uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3, he says, For consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons in Proverbs 3 that says, My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says that the discipline we receive on behalf of our sins, God wanting us to confess and repent of our sins, the situations God is willing to put us in to press those out of us, that's a sign that you are a child of God. Because what son does a good father have that he does not discipline? It's fantastic logic. Verse 9, furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. 
Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, the Father, does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is literally, that could just be the whole sermon. I mean, it's such an uncomfortable reality that at any moment, and that we're talking about sins that we know about. We're not talking about these hidden things like, I have no clue I'm living in this sin and God just punishing me and punishing me. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that you, that you know about that you just refuse to confess. That is the kind of sin we're talking about here. And uh, the logic really checks out. I mean, really, what father would not discipline the son that he really loves, as opposed to sitting idly by and apathetically letting you just drift off into sin, he intervenes and disciplines. Now we think all the time, you know, does Jesus intervene in your life? Absolutely, Jesus intervenes in my life. Does Jesus intervene in your life in ways that you don't like? Eh, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, we think about Jesus intervening, and we're like, yeah, he saved me out of that situation. Yeah, he, you know, he, he gave me that thing that I needed, you know? But we're very slow to kind of think, man, Jesus gave me the right suffering at the right time. Man, he knocked me out with COVID at the right time. And he closed everything down just at the right time. I was so filled with pride, I was about to lose myself completely. And he just knocked me to the floor at the perfect time. You know, we're just so slow to say things like that. It's, if you said that to someone in our, like just a secular person in our culture, one of your friends, family members, something like that, they'd just be like, what the heck are you talking about? I mean, we vaguely have this idea that suffering can be good. You read someone like, I don't know, like David Goggins or some, like, some motivational speaker who was like, I was down in the dumps and all this stuff. And then it, that's exactly what brought me to where I am today. That's kind of, we hear that, but it's like these rags to riches story or something like that. It's, it just doesn't seem realistic. You know, the idea that suffering can provide something good, we're just like, that's for like 0.1% of people. Usually it's just terrible, you know? And usually it's just so worthless. It's a zero sum game. There's nothing we can gain from it. And James and caring for the teaching of Jesus would just say nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we get this, we get this from the very first book of the Bible, we get taste of this. I mean, uh, in Genesis, we get the story of Joseph in Egypt. His brothers ship him off to Egypt as a slave and all this stuff happens. And let's be honest, Joseph starts out very prideful. He's always lording it over his brothers. Like he's got this coat. Dad loves me more than you. It's very consistent. Like Joseph probably has some pride, you know? And we would say, yeah, selling him into slavery, like did he do that to like knock him down a peg? I don't really know, but... Let's, I mean, by the end of it, Joseph was so humble. He was helping all these people who were oppressing him. He was helping, you know, uh, like Potiphar's wife sends him to jail and he helps all of these people. Uh, he interprets their dreams and everything. And then he ends up feeding and housing the brothers that sold him into slavery. At the end of the day, all the things that he went through, all the suffering he went through, completely and radically changed him as a person. And then he was one of the most iconic figures one of the most iconic patriarchs in the Old Testament because of his enemy love. He just kept loving his enemies who caused him all this suffering, you know? And, um, and, and in, in John chapter one, it, I don't have it in your sermon notes verbatim, but in John chapter one, the gospel of John is the only gospel with like a, a theological kind of prologue at the beginning. And in that prologue, John says that, uh, that his own people, the Jews did not receive him, but to those who did receive Jesus, he gave those people the right to become children of God. 
To be a child of God is a right that you receive from Jesus. You can say all people are children of God in the sense that God created everyone, yes. But as the writer of Hebrews says here, like we have the, we have the privilege of having been adopted by God. And so we are treated as sons that a good father loves and he disciplines us. And we come out better on the other side when we press into that. And so as we kind of close that logic off and wrap a bow on that, we have to acknowledge that there's really only one reason though, one starting place. There's only one reason that suffering could possibly be good. Because suffering's not supposed to exist if you think about it. Think about the fall, sin entered the world, brokenness came, like it's not theoretically supposed to exist, but God allowed it. So why did he allow it? Well, the only reason that suffering could actually be good is if God suffered with you or before you or suffered first. And we know that that's true because of the gospel. God himself took on flesh and suffered on our behalf. Jesus, it says, uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's only one way in which suffering could possibly be good, and it's if God has gone before you to the suffering. And he has done exactly that on the cross. Jesus has suffered on our behalf. And the writer of Hebrews, actually before this, back in Hebrews chapter three, he says that we have a savior who can relate to us in every single way, who has been tempted and has suffered in every way possible. Has, in Philippians two, Paul says that he humbles himself even to the point of death even to death on a cross, even a long, gruesome, torturous death. He has suffered all things. He lived a homeless life. He was oppressed. He was outcast. You know, he, he lived and spent his time with the outcasts of society. There was just no part of his life where you're, where you're saying there's really no significant suffering during this part of Jesus's life. It's just, I mean, he was born in a pig's feeding trough, the most unclean place a Jew could ever be. His whole life was just top to bottom filled with suffering, filled with suffering. So we can't, by that logic, follow the culture in that way and say that that narrative is correct, that all suffering is a zero-sum game. We can say that we should alleviate suffering. We are supposed to uh, alleviate suffering, the suffering of others in our community and in this body. We are supposed to be on a mission to alleviate suffering from others because of the love and the love of Christ that we are to show them. If we care about their eternal needs, we should definitely care about people's temporary needs. So I'm not saying that we should just stop technology and progress of all kinds, but we have to acknowledge the narratives that get attached to those things in our culture. And so let's go go back into uh, these last two verses of what James talks about. James gives an example of the prayer of a righteous person, okay? He says, the prayer of a righteous man is very powerful as it is working, talking about healing the sick in your church. And he gives this example. He says, Elijah, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and earth bore its fruit. And so maybe you're not familiar with this story. This is a story about the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings about chapter 18. And he lives in a time of immense persecution for like Orthodox Jews who were trying to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel uh, in this time period. And what was so bad is that there was a king at the time named King Ahab, almost all the kings were bad. Ahab was one of the absolute worst. He marries a foreign wife of another kingdom named Jezebel. You've probably heard Kanye call someone Jezebel before, right? That's where he's getting this. He marries his foreign wife called Jezebel who brings in syncretism, basically this idea that 
all gods are equal, like all beliefs are equal, we'll just worship it all at the same time. Brings in foreign gods and establishes a syncretist kind of worldview and it spreads throughout the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? And so the people are worshiping these weather gods, these Baal gods, because they care so much about their crops and their prosperity that they, can't, they just can't trust Yahweh anymore. There's just too much trust involved there. We gotta go to these gods where we just make the sacrifice, it just like kind of happens and we're like in control of it. And uh, they're not saying don't worship Yahweh. They're just saying worship these people in addition to Yahweh, kind of mix it in, stir the pot a little bit. And here's kind of the interaction that happens when Elijah goes before King Ahab and confronts him to confess and repent because he's living in sin and causing all these other people to live in sin. Here's where this intersection of like prayer during suffering, here's, here's where James gets his, uh, gets his example from. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, it says, So King Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets, the false prophets, at Mount Carmel. There were 450 false prophets of these weather gods. And he gathers them all together. Verse 21, then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord, Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him, choose one. But the people didn't answer him a single word. They didn't do anything. They said, we're gonna keep living this way. Makes us comfortable, makes us feel good. We like this. This is what James in chapter one would call double-mindedness. It's like when we pray to God, but we really don't want God. We want just the temporary things that God could probably give us if he would just do it. If he could just give us what we want right now, I, that's really all I want. Like, I don't want a deeper relationship with you. I don't want discipline. I don't want to come out on the other side of this a better person or something like that. I just want the stuff. This is what James calls double-mindedness. So let's look back in James chapter one. Like I said at the beginning, James is ending his letter with the exact kind of content that he began the letter. So if we look in James chapter one, starting in verse two, Brian preached on this like eight weeks ago. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, big trials, small trials, you know, all sorts of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith for no, with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Sounds a lot like the Israelites. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Notice his focus on being double-minded. He says it's, it's the first thing he thinks about when talking about if your prayer could be some, like, if your prayer could be compromised in any way, like the first thing he goes to is make sure you're not double-minded in your prayer. Make sure that you're praying for this reason, not for this reason. Do you want wisdom in your trials or do you want to grow holiness, grow in holiness to God? Or do you simply, do you simply want out of your suffering? Are you being double-minded? Because when you love something more than God, really, what's the first thing you lose in your relationship with God? If you're loving something more than Him, the first thing you lose is probably prayer. Because what is prayer but a healthy relationship with your Father? Open communication about how you're feeling, what, you know, the guidance you need from your Father, speaking and hearing from God simply just reflects a healthy relationship. And Jesus began when He taught the Lord's Prayer, He began with the line, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. The beginning of prayer is knowing that regardless of your circumstances, 
whether you're in the suffering or you're in the cheerful periods, regardless of your circumstances, the beginning of prayer is knowing that wherever you are, your Father is for you. Whether He's taking you through this burning trial, this thing you absolutely hate, or He's simply just throwing the blessings all over you. Your Father is for you in both of those scenarios. He's for us. He's for us in these scenarios. There's, there was, I was, I could, I lost count of the things that were going wrong, like, not really going wrong, but I showed up, I was like, oh, it's wet. There's like a dead rat somewhere around here that I almost stepped on. There's a pond over here. Helicopter's been here like 18 dozen times. I'm like, this is it. This is just like in the small, mild inconveniences, they're a barometer for your suffering. I'm just like, this is it. Like you're always doing this, you know? So what do we learn about prayer, especially prayer in the middle of suffering. We learned that prayer is not a way to get out of a circumstance or to get something. It's a formative discipline. I just, oh, I need us to know this. Like everyone, you have to know this. It's a formative discipline. It's primarily meant to form you and shape you to think, act, and feel certain ways on a consistent basis toward God. It is not something you go to. It's not a break the glass in case of emergency sort of thing. This is like something you need to do regularly that changes you. That is primary, that's point number one about prayer. Okay, it's not that prayer cannot affect your temporary circumstances or something like that. It's simply that that's, that's a tier two, tier three issue of prayer. That is, that's a bonus, that's bonus stuff, you know? And so when we are stuck praying for things like that, things or circumstances, we may be stuck in double-mindedness, you know? So the Northern Kingdom of Israel had this problem to the point of their severe idolatry, okay? The people who James is writing to probably have this problem. He wouldn't write it if it wasn't a possibility. And therefore we know that it's gotta be a problem for us today. It's gotta be something that we frequently could fall into or, or, or you know, drift into. And that's how I want us to, to think about the importance of this. Because you can, you can drift into double-mindedness very, very easily. You can just kind of float into it by not doing anything. But you cannot drift into increased levels of faithfulness, holiness, and righteousness. You cannot drift. Discipline has to be there. And so we can discipline ourselves and we've seen the Father will discipline us as well. And we need to welcome those situations. And so maybe a practice, maybe you're here and you diagnose yourself, you're like, I'm all the way at the beginning of prayer. I, I pray before my food if I'm alone. But like, if I'm at a table with people and they're like, hey, could you pray over the food? I'm like, I'm sorry, I just cannot do that. Sorry, you're gonna have to find someone else. I'm just, I can't, it's against my religion, I can't do it, sorry. Maybe you're that person. Uh, so I just wanna tell you where I started when I was like, I would say I have a lot of room to go. Uh, but I've seen a lot of progress by simply doing one thing. So I started prayer journaling uh, like a year and a half ago, two years ago, because I have terrible attention span. I start praying out loud. I just start thinking of other things. And 10 minutes later, I'm just like watching TV. I don't even know what happened. I just wake, I black out and I just wake up doing something, doing something else I don't even know. And so I just started out how Jesus says to start it. He said, therefore pray like this. And he sends the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and uh, forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, you know? And 
It's such a simple prayer. You just acknowledge his lordship, provide the most basic necessities. And also I remember God that I'm a sinner. I just, I remember it. And I need your help to live the opposite way today. If you just, if you have attention problems, I would recommend prayer journaling. It's great. Just write down a page. The Lord's Prayer takes about like a third of the page. It does like 33% of the work for you. But uh, I think Jesus actually meant for you to pray that regularly, every single day, if not twice a day, because it's formative. It's supposed to shape how you think. You're supposed to get to the end of the day and say, I mean, I thought about all those things in the Lord's Prayer all day. That affected me all day. And then you get to the point where you memorize it. You can pray it out loud wherever you want. You start paraphrasing it. It's great. And it's so simple. You don't have to be this crazy prayer who's just like leading prayer room every week or something. You could just come to prayer room on Wednesdays and not say anything, learn how other people pray. Uh, we just, we want this for you, for us. We want to be a community that prays in all circumstances through all things. And so as I conclude, uh, I want us to imagine our lives if we actually took this and applied it. Imagine a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, if this was your reality like every day, you prayed as a discipline, not as a sort of break this in case of emergency sort of thing, not as a get out of jail free card or something because you probably, probably won't even work that way, but we actually just prayed it as a discipline. Imagine the growth. You could probably just imagine it a year from now, a month from now, where you would be, the difference, the kind of the peace that you would have knowing that in both circumstances, you're doing the same thing. Your behavior is the same thing. You can imagine the depth of your relationship with God if we learn to walk through suffering with him, not kind of in spite of him. Or imagine the blessing that you could be on other people who are suffering if you learned how Jesus is right there next to you and has already gone before you to the cross in every single moment of suffering. Imagine the blessing you could be to others. If you imagine the person you would become, it would look a lot like Jesus, because he was and is that person. And since he was and is that person, that's exactly who he wants you to be.